You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Today we are talking to Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. You may know that he's a family physician and he works part-time at a Big Island emergency room in North Kona. Good morning, Lieutenant Governor. Good morning. I'm so glad that you could uh, carve out some time for us. Always. Now, you were working this weekend. What can you share with us just about the cases that you're seeing? Well, the fact that there are cases, and there are more of them, is the first thing. Uh, you've heard it from Dr. Walensky and others that this is a pandemic among the unvaccinated, and that's, you know, in a sad and heartbreaking way, true. I saw, for example, a very wonderful 29-year-old and 61-year-old, both of whom were unvaccinated and caught COVID, and they're quite sick. So they caught it from their relatives who also were not vaccinated. And so a sub part of our population, those who unfortunately have not gotten immunity from vaccinations, are catching COVID. And remember, these individuals did not catch COVID for the last year. So the Delta variant is more infectious and it's affecting people in areas where we don't have full vaccination. So my heart goes out to them. And of course, I provided care for them, but they were really sick. So we're seeing more and more of that across the state. Today, there were 163 cases. It's basically doubled over the last two weeks. 163 cases today, uh, and our average is now up to 123. Our number in the hospital is 72. And just two weeks ago, the rate was half the rate. The number of active cases was half the rate and so on. So I think what I saw in the ER is just a reflection of what's going on in the state. And we are seeing more cases in children. Yes. We are. And what that is about is so we see that about 20 percent of the cases are in children. And remember, about 20 percent of the population are children. So what we're seeing is because they cannot be vaccinated under age 12 and only about half of them age 12 to 18 are vaccinated because they're a lower vaccination rate group, they're very susceptible. So if their parents or loved ones catch covid particularly the Delta variant, which is now the dominant variant in our state and across the country, it will spread. Now, uniquely to many families, some people have kids that are able to get vaccinated, like my family. Jamie and I have a 14-year-old in Maya. She's fully vaccinated. She will not catch COVID, knock wood. We have a 10-year-old who is not eligible, that's Sammy, not eligible for vaccination, and we're concerned about him. So as we head towards school, as he goes to public school, we like all other parents, are, you know, navigating what's going to happen when we open up. But Maya is immune and Sammy is not. Well, we are hearing cases of what they call them breakthrough cases, right? The folks who have been vaccinated who uh, do uh, uh, get the virus, you know, and that's a concern because you, you don't want the unvaccinated adults to be transmitting it to the children at home. That's true. So and I and I should be very specific about that phenomenon it's minimally affecting us. So only about 3% of all of the cases that occur in people are for people who are vaccinated. 97% of the cases are for people who are unvaccinated, but it can happen. And it has tended to happen to older individuals whose immunity doesn't kind of surge. Some people, as we get older, our immune system just doesn't respond as well to vaccinations. And so the individual, for instance, the one individual that passed away who had been vaccinated was very elderly and his immune response had been diminished. So I don't want people to think that the breakthrough uh, phenomenon is our biggest concern. By far, and I know you're not saying that, by far our biggest concern is the unvaccinated population. But yes, the more unvaccinated people that catch COVID, the higher the likelihood that exposure could lead to a breakthrough case. Well, you know, I happened to be in an emergency room uh, recently and someone came in, an adult, uh, and I, you know, o- overheard saying, well, do you, th- you know, they had a fever and, and I said, do you think this could be, you know, possibly COVID? Are you vaccinated? And, and uh, you know, I thought, gosh, do I want to be in this waiting room, you know, breathing this air? If somebody comes in, even though I am vaccinated, you know, you just worry. Yeah, you do. It's natural to worry. It's appropriate to worry but I want to lower your concerns. It really is not a very significant concern if you're vaccinated. Of course, you don't want someone breathing and coughing on you because after a certain amount of time, if you get such a large viral load, if someone had COVID and they were right next to you or on top of you, sure, you're at higher risk. But if you're vaccinated, you are essentially safe. And remember also, if you're vaccinated, the course of your disease is far less severe. 
people who have been vaccinated are not the ones ending up in the hospital or getting admitted to the hospital. They are individuals who have very mild cases and it's no big deal. So it's not really likely something to to harm anyone who's been vaccinated, but it's on our minds. And it's on our minds because we have loved ones who are either young or very old or who had a medical condition that prohibited them from getting vaccinated, like severe allergies to the vaccinations. So that's the reason that when I tell people that I believe they should get vaccinated, I'm not just talking about for their own benefit. I'm talking for the benefit of the family around them, the cakey near them, and of course, just the society at large who they may come into contact with. So it's really important that people get vaccinated because otherwise we hear heartbreaking stories. I heard a, a story this, this week of a 50-year-old gentleman, just a wonderful person, I'm told, who caught COVID because he was unvaccinated and he passed away. He had eight daughters, eight daughters of age from really young to in their 20s, and it could have been prevented. So these are the, the worst and most heartbreaking stories, but all we have to do is get our population fully vaccinated, or at least well over that 70 percentile that the governor's been pushing. Because if we do that, it lowers the risk everywhere. And, you know, parents are concerned because uh, folks are thinking about, you know, getting back into the classroom with the new school year. Um, and I uh, talked to someone uh, this week who is on that task force, you know, that they're trying to uh, update the guidelines for, uh, for, for families and for schools as we start this academic year. And, and I think there's going to be some additional guidance coming out. Um, I, I do understand there are some schools that have said that vaccines may be mandatory. Uh, you know, I'm hearing that Iolani School is one of them. Uh, uh, Brigham Young University, I think, are requiring students to be vaccinated before they step on campus. UH had said that they were going to do that and then walk that back because their vaccination rates are, are, are very high. Uh, but what, right. are, what are you hearing? hearing the same things. Look, I have a daughter at Iolani, and before the vaccination was available, just wearing masks and doing good, solid social distancing, they were able to prevent any cases from occurring. It was extraordinary. And then when you add the vaccination on top of it, now they are, of course, letting people uh, demure, not take it based on their spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, and so on. Uh, but they were able to successfully prevent any spread of COVID by just being smart and being very, very engaged. They have a great headmaster there um, in Mr. Cottrell. So she was safe. We felt safe. And then we also vaccinated Maya as soon as, as it was available for her in that category of age 12 to 17. So that school will do very well. But other schools are going to have to, through the task force and through all of our input as parents, do a great job. We're going to have to have mask wearing for all kids because kids can spread, as we know. We have to make sure that children stay home when they're sick. That's critical because if your kid is sick with a fever and they're unvaccinated and they're achy, they probably have COVID. They probably have the Delta variant. We have to keep the cohorts of students together so that there's not an outbreak of consequence. So like Sammy's classroom, which has probably 15 to 20 students in it, they will stay together at the charter school where he goes. And none of them will be vaccinated. They will be wearing masks. They'll be washing their hands a lot. But they will be able to prevent it from spreading to, say, one of the other classes in the other grades. And so if there is a case or an outbreak, it will be limited. But these are the kind of recommendations we need to make. Now, some people are saying, I can't send my kid to school until it's totally safe. Well, these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. Is it safe to not educate ourselves? Is it safe to miss the developmental milestones in a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old, it's pretty tough. Uh, but I respect parents who are on the fence. And if some parents need extra help with distance learning, we should offer that option. That's important. You know, uh, we have uh, also been uh, uh, talking to a number of uh, businesses out there, you know, restaurateurs, uh, you know, with this whole uh, mask wearing, uh, you know, asking whether the patrons have been vaccinated um, and, and making sure that their staff, you know, are, are fully vaccinated. And, you know, we did talk to, uh, you know, one of the regulators, the state health department, uh, Peter Oshiro is with the uh, sanitation branch, and he just expressed some frustration because, you know, with the guidelines that the CDC has issued and, and it, it the, the guidance changes, right, depending on what's happening with the variants. But uh, here's what he had to say about uh, general enforcement. At this point in time, the Department of Health is not enforcing 
the mask mandates or the social distancing at our regulated establishments. And the main reason why it's a legal problem right now is because once the food establishment tells us that their employees are all vaccinated and that they're checking that their customers are all vaccinated, then there's absolutely no scientific reason to be wearing a mask or to socially distance. So if we close a restaurant down and issue them a red card for not wearing a mask, for following CDC guidance, it's not going to fly. You know, and he expressed some frustration just, you know, because uh, it's kind of all over the map. Yes. Well, I, you know, I really like Teeter, and I've known him for, for a long time. So we're all frustrated when we can't do what we would like to do, which is to get everyone vaccinated and get ourselves well into that safe zone of herd immunity. There's only so much that DOH can do. They can't enforce everywhere. Only the city and HPD and to a very small degree, the attorney general's office, can they enforce some of these things. So it's about personal responsibility. We don't want to uh, destroy business opportunities and jobs for our people because that pays for their schooling and, and health care and everything for our kids. On the flip side, people have to make the responsible decision to tell us the truth about whether they're vaccinated and to actually you know, not go into high-risk settings if they're not vaccinated because they will catch COVID and land in the hospital. 72 of our beautiful citizens are in the hospital today, very sick. And that, you know, that hurts. And many of them caught it just happenstance because they were near someone else who was unvaccinated and they themselves were unvaccinated. So uh, what Peter says is a little controversial, but it's also honest. And I think honesty is what the people need right now during a pandemic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor. I really appreciate your time. You bet. Take care. We've been talking with Lieutenant Governor Josh Green about the challenges swirling with the latest COVID numbers in Hawaii as we get ready to go back to school. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're jumping into the toy box to look at the local history of one of our favorite gadgets. This simple toy is made of two connected discs with a string tied around the middle axle. Once the string is attached to your finger and wound around the disc, you drop it, so gravity and physics take over. By now, you probably know we're talking about the yo-yo. How long did it take for you to nail the loop-de-loop on your Duncan? Well, for today's quiz, we're shunning the spotlight on a group of highly skilled yo-yo players from Honolulu from the 1990s. The group was founded at uh, High Performance Kites in the early part of the decade and specialized in kite stunts. They transitioned to yo-yos sometime in 1996, and they traveled the globe performing various stunts and tricks for audiences. We want to know the name of this group that featured players like Alex Garcia and Alan Batangan. Think you know? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NareetHawaii.com.
The pandemic forced the closure of several local eateries, and those who have survived are hanging on. It has been feast or famine, so says Doug Harris of the Harris Agency and Food Gurus, which this summer rolled out a restaurant index tracking um, sales as we move into an economic recovery phase. The results are revealing and may explain why it's been tough to get reservations around town. So Food Gurus has always background has always been in food. And, you know, we do a lot of restaurants. We actually have nearly 3 million transactions every month that we keep an eye on. And the thing with this report, anytime you're looking at trends, is making sure that you've got a good sample base that remains consistent. And I think that's what we have with the Food Gurus Index because, um, you know, it's, we, we're very careful about any new stores that open or anything that's closed. We modify the data so that um, the source remains consistent and reliable. But it is, a, it is also a trend. It's, it measures trends. We focus on daily sales, daily transactions, and what we call ticket average, which is the amount you spend per transaction. So we found that we wanted to compare our clients' performance with um, what the market was doing. So we decided to break uh, the Hawaii into the 3 million transactions that we were tracking monthly. We wanted to break it into by island and then by restaurant category. And so we have the three categories of being Waikiki and resort restaurants, quick service restaurants, which is, you know, like beverage chains and stuff that you really just pop in and grab or on impulsive buys, etc. And then we have what we call casual dining and fine dining. We combine those together because they have similar characteristics. So, you know, that's what we track and um, we're looking at the trends. You know, it's amazing is if I look back, what the most interesting thing that I've been noticing on the trends is it's almost been feast or famine, and pardon the pun, but, you know, last year we were at the lows of lows, and right now we're at the highs of highs. Like, we're, we're seeing numbers that we haven't seen in, you know, five, ten years. Well, all I have to do is talk to my friends, and they complain about how they can't get reservations anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a number of things, too, because, you know, first of all, with regard to um, supply, you know, a lot of places didn't make it um, through, uh, you know, as in, as a one whole. So a lot of them have uh, closed or reinvented themselves. And I think so, you know, there's not as much supply and demand has been increasing because we've all been um, kept inside and tucked away last year. And then um, as it's becoming... As our confidence increases and customer sentiment becomes more willing to take chances with more people vaccinated, et cetera, we want to dine out. We want to, we want to enjoy that experience again, you know. And I think what restaurants are seeing is, you know, a lot of stuff was moving primarily into delivery last year, and now we've got more options. Delivery still remains popular, but it's, it's starting to become less and less a factor on the overall type of customer because, you know, people are dining in, people want to dine in. And as regulations fall back and people feel more more secure, I think we're going to continue to see more dining in and takeout uh, and delivery will become a smaller percentage of overall transactions or overall percentage of the business. And, you know, we have talked to uh, businesses in the community who say that they've gone the route of direct sales you know, yeah. whether it's selling fish directly to, you know, auntie around the corner versus yeah. a, a restaurant, you know, wholesaling to a restaurant. I mean, I, it's just fascinating to see what's what's changed in the marketplace. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the delivery companies are still demanding pretty high tariffs of each item sold. So you could be paying anywhere from 25 to 30 percent. So as people got busy, especially the heavy delivery brands that are operating in the casual and fine dining, they actually shut delivery down. Because it was, it's not as profitable, and plus it's a humbug in operations when you when you've got a line out the door. Mm-hmm. So I think you know delivery it's it's still doing okay, and but what we're seeing now is because of the lines and because people have been trained to move into the delivery mindset last year, online ordering is is growing in leaps and bounds, and so more and more people are making sure that their online ordering systems and takeouts becoming a bigger part of it. Are you able to track things like tips? You know, because I just know like when I go to a, a food truck and they ask me, oh, do you want to give a, a tip? You know, I was doing that during the pandemic because, you know, you want to help out these small businesses. But, yeah, I mean, it just became interesting to see if that continues. 
Yeah, we think, well, we definitely are seeing a higher ticket average and tips, you know, make up that ticket average also. And, I, you know, I know in customer sentiment was a lot of people wanted to support the restaurant workers when, there was, when they couldn't go to work. And so when, when they did open their doors and they were able to interact again, uh, people, just the uh, Aloha spirit came through in a lot of people and we wanted to make sure that they could stay open and they could bring more people on. And so I know we all did more than the usual tip that we give and that showed up. But I also think that larger parties is a big part of that too, right? I think that's definitely going to be driving a lot of the ticket average and the bigger the party, the bigger the tips and the more people we're going to need to serve them. And of the different uh, areas that you've been tracking, you know, I, I don't know what you're seeing on the neighbor islands. You know, Maui obviously is is just being inundated uh, by visitors at this point. But uh, what can you tell us and what can yeah. you share on the Sorry. neighbor islands? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, we, what we're seeing across the islands is Oahu's seen the strongest resurgence with regards to daily transaction and daily sales versus the other islands. But that's really primarily for residents. I mean, Waikiki and resorts across the state are performing at the highest percentage gain from January, but they were at pretty low points in January too. And we're only, you know, what we're seeing in the resort areas, well, first of all, you can't get cars. So the quick serve restaurants and the casual dining aren't as seen as big a lift as the fine dining and the reservation dining in the resorts in Waikiki. So, um, you know, there's still, but we're seeing right now, you, you can't even get into the restaurants. You can't even get a room in the hotels in Maui. And, you know, we're seeing ticket averages going up and, you know, numbers like that you haven't seen before. I was at a resort recently, and I know I saw that the, a popular restaurant was closed, you know, during the middle of the week, during, I guess, what would be slow days. Here's what's really happening with regards to this bubble. And this bubble is going to burst because there's two things that are going on. You know, we still think it's going to last through the summer, but uh, more places are opening, so the supply is growing. And, um, you know, a lot of people moving, you know, that, that uh, can't get reservations, etc., are, are moving down into uh, quick-serve restaurants or casual dining and then looking also at, at um, grocery, takeout and grocery, ready to eat, because they don't want to, you know, don't want to stand in line or, you know, they can't get reservations. Right. So they're going so, back to the yeah. kitchen. But it will, it, the, the, the bubble will burst. I mean, right now, it's, it's really just, uh, there's a lot of places still opening up. There's a lot of uncertainty about what's open, what's not open. And I think, you know, um, with regards to uh, the social distancing and a lot of the other operational limit limitations like chain supply issues, labor issues, I think it's going to be another couple of months before we really start seeing things starting to become uh, back to returning back to a new normal. Anything else on the neighbor island front? The big island, we're having a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Certain areas are doing Hilo area versus the West, area, West Hawaii area. Hilo's not as fast or as fast as recovering as the West Hawaii stuff is. I think the, I think the guys on the neighbor islands are, are going to get hit hardest with regards to the, you know, the visitors not being able to get cars and, and, you know, disposable income on, on some of the inflationary things they're paying now, not the airfare, of course, but accommodation and transportation have gone through the roof. You know, we did see, I think, I, I don't know if I shared this with you, but overall, I think we saw growth from January through to May, about 40 to 50 percent, depending on the category. And I think we're sort of, you know, uh, we're probably going to see growth of uh, somewhere between um, four to eight percent a month for the next couple of months. That was Doug Harris of the Harris Agency and Food Gurus talking about a new restaurant sales index tracking trends across the state. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to Homa Summer Nights with live music, bites, beverages, and art-making workshops on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9. 
honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Rabbi Paul Citron, author of I Am My Prayer. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about enlivening prayer that wakes us up and opens our consciousness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Homeworks Construction, a full-service design-build firm with 21 years in the business and more than 750 projects. Offering services from planning through to completion for new homes and remodels, homeworksconstruction.com. One of the issues that appears to be polarizing communities across the country is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell joins us today to talk about the police. Good morning, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. So you got sent down to court to cover a case. Tell us about that. Yeah, so yesterday uh, was the it's the start of a preliminary hearing for three officers charged with second-degree murder and second-degree attempted murder in the April shooting death of I Remember Psycap. He's the 16-year-old boy who police shot in that white Honda on Kalakaua Avenue. Uh, the prosecutor is trying to uh, initiate charges against the officer, and uh, the way the prosecutor is going about doing it is kind of raising some novel Uh, legal questions that came up yesterday during court during about 90 minutes of arguments. Uh, Basically, the question here is, can a prosecutor still pursue charges after a grand jury declined uh, indictment? Uh, We know that Honolulu prosecutor Steve Ahm brought this case to a grand jury in June, and they decided not to, you know, press charges against the officers. But the prosecutors have been arguing that the Constitution gives them a few options on how they can pursue charges. And, you know, losing out on one option doesn't mean they can't go with others. Yesterday, defense attorney Thomas Otake uh, told them they're reading the Constitution wrong. He said the Constitution gives individuals rights. The Constitution doesn't give government institutions rights. And he also argued that a separate state law gives individuals more protection than the Constitution does. Uh, Judge William Domingo uh, sided with the prosecutors in the case, decided that it should proceed and, you know, dismissed these uh, motions to to uh, stop the case early on. And uh, so the case is being allowed to proceed. But Otake and other defense attorneys that we've spoken to, they believe that this question is likely to go up to the Supreme Court eventually. Yeah, because, I mean, it's kind of a uh, it's not a procedure that we're used to seeing right not one we're used to seeing but uh christopher van martyr he's the deputy prosecutor handling the case he said that you know the office has done this before it's not totally unprecedented and the defense attorneys have said that's not really the point just because it's not you know unprecedented it doesn't mean it's wrong (laughs) right uh so they're they're trying to raise this kind of uh, new question that they're hoping another court can sort out. And then the family of the the boy has also filed a civil lawsuit, right? They've filed a separate civil lawsuit, and that's also uh, going through court, but on a, on a different track than the criminal case right now. Yeah, but it just sounds like this is going to be a protracted if uh, these, this particular issue goes all the way up to the, the, the Supreme Court. Well, even at this lower court, it's in district court right now. It looks like it's going to take a while. The case was continued to next Tuesday. Um, Yesterday, we heard from three witnesses, uh, Queen's medical surgeon, the chief medical examiner, and an officer who accompanied the ambulance. Uh, Knew yesterday, uh, the medical examiner said that a toxicology report found meth in I remember SICAP system, though I'd like to point out that the uh, medical examiner, Masahiko Kobayashi, he didn't come to any conclusions about what, you know, that might have meant uh, or, what, or what level of meth the toxicology report found. But the defense took this as an opportunity during cross-examination to start pulling on these threads 
to, uh, you know, kind of demonstrate that, you know, officers felt threatened, that they reasonably believed that the individuals in the white Honda pose a threat to uh, the public. And it seems like they're going to try to use that as defense against the murder charges that the prosecutors are seeking. And we should mention that, you know, this has really polarized the community and, and at that uh Uh, proceeding yesterday that there were demonstrators on both sides out there, uh, you know, just uh, raising, you know, their fears about what's really going on. There was a reporting fellow, Lauren Teruya, was outside the courthouse and, you know, she witnessed several scuffles in the crowd. She said that a couple of squad cars appeared. Uh, It was largely, uh, uh, there was a large Shopo presence, the police union. They're joined by firefighters and longshoremen also supporting the officers. As the three walked out of the court, they came out to cheers. Though earlier in the day, uh, there was also a good number of the supporters of Sidecap's family, and they also, you, you know, were cheering loudly and ringing bells after Judge Domingo decided that the case should move forward. Yeah, all very interesting signs will be long and drawn out. But thanks so much, uh, Lovell. Thanks. All right. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. We continue with this thread about police this morning. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us in studio today. Nice to see you, Neil. Nice to see you, too. <laughs> well, you know, this uh, issue of the police, boy, it's it's a tough one. Well, it's a tough one. And what we're seeing in, in Hawaii is kind of the tip of the iceberg focusing on the event. And uh, what I'm going to talk about today is a recent study, a recent book by Rosa Brooks uh, called Tangled in Blue, which is about her experiences uh, as virtually a member of the uh, uh, the District of Columbia Metropolitan Police Department, the MPD, as he sh- tells it. Um, it's a very interesting book, but the first thing you have to understand is what her perspective is and how she got involved with this, because that helps to kind of set the tone. Uh, Brooks is a tenured law professor. She's 40 years old or so, got a couple of kids, a comfortable life. And she said, I got interested in in a couple of things. One, I got interested in what else I could do in my life. And the second thing is I got interested in what it means to be a police officer. So I didn't have any other agenda than that. And she found out that the MPD has this kind of very extensive uh, training program for volunteers where if you complete 16 weeks of training – that's three times a week, a uh, heavy one on Saturday, plus 480 hours of patrol. And your training is very much like what the regular police cadets get. If you finish all that, you can become virtually a street cop if you get certified. In other words, she ultimately was able to ride as a police officer on her own sometime. Other, other, so she has a real interesting perspective. She is a liberal activist in background. She's a human rights lawyer. Um, she's been active in international human rights thing. And her mother, who was very influential in her life and still is, is Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara Ehrenreich has written is this well-known feminist, social activist, um, been involved in protests, used to take her along. And Rosa Rosa Brooks is named after Rosa Parks. Oh, my goodness. So okay. it's the, there's this interplay in the book when she talks about it. But the end of the story is that this person knew how to do the kind of research. She kept her mouth shut. She learned. She didn't preach. She didn't do a lot of things that us academics who – our our social activists would be tempted to do. I say that, spend a little time on it, because it helps to, I think, legitimate the findings that she has. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. So she just became a member, like, then of the police reserve unit, I guess. Oh, yeah, but, uh, you know, this is a kind of police reserve where you're about as close to being a regular police officer as you can be. This is not a ride-along. This is not... You and I were talking about this before. There is a kind of police citizen training program here, but it seems to be more to give the citizens an extensive knowledge, a committed knowledge of what it takes to be a police officer in in Hawaii. 
but they don't follow up with the same kind of actions. They they don't have the same kind of powers that they that they do in in D.C. Oh yeah, I mean it sounds like she went through this in intense. Oh yeah, I mean <laughs> most of the book is about her experiences, telling stories about what she did, and then kind of reflecting on the stories, what it means to be an officer firsthand in, in a very poor, predominantly uh, uh, black neighborhood. And one of the things you learn is she didn't have much time for reflections because she said you're just busy all the time. And that, that it's, uh, you know, so that's, to me, that made me feel more comfortable about the the findings that she had. And to their credit, the police officers, who in many ways talk and behave in ways that are totally different than the way she normally behaves, are quite tolerant of her. Um, talk to her pretty much the same, no BS terms that they use otherwise, occasionally get, in order to tease her, get a little bit sexist, and she has to make some decisions about how to deal with that, uh, which is to make a joke about it generally. But that's that's the setting. And so uh, I guess then what are the takeaways well, here's the here's the main takeaways, and you you begin to see it in 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 the training, and and we'll work to where it takes it. The primary thing that a police officer learns, both in training, although it's not said quite this way, and then after on, is that at any moment you could be killed. That is, that's the fundamental kind of thing, and all so much of their training is about this. They see experiences of they see videos of police officers who do dumb things, uh, and that all the bad things that, that can happen to them. That's a very primary, um, uh, that's a very primary thing you learn. If that becomes the way you see things, then policing becomes this kind of interesting and very difficult combination. Because on the one hand, what you're learning is that if you're in trouble, whatever the rules are, you can do what you have to do. That is severe trouble. On the other hand, the other lesson you learn is they've got all these rules that you better follow because if you don't follow them, the department is going to sell you out. The higher-ups are not going to protect you. If the higher-ups in the police department get into trouble because of something you did, you're done for. So think about that kind of situation in, in, in operating. Then there is this other thing about what you learn and what you don't learn about race. There are two things that are very important about um, MPD's training. Now, remember, 75% of the new recruits to the D.C. Police Department are college graduates. Okay, so you don't just look at, oh, these people aren't very smart. A good portion of them are people of color, African-American predominantly. Even so, this is what... This is the the two lessons that you learn about race. One, you don't learn. One is that there's very little taught about big picture policing. That is, you learn about how to be a cop. You don't learn about things like the effects of incarceration on people or um, these various various kinds of things, looking at violence overall. Uh, The other thing that you learn is the other thing that happens and you're really taught this, is that race does not matter. We're all, it's all about being blue. Um, uh, That's your identity. It's not a racial identity, and that we don't police on the basis of race. There isn't this kind of concern. Now, that's a very controversial one on the outside, Um, and you've heard it here before. Chief Ballard, when she was a chief, one day said, the police here are racist. End of story. It's not the end of story, but the important thing is how common that message is. If you put these two things together, uh, and and she talks about watching videos, you know, body cam videos of these controversial police shootings. She said you, 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 you watch them as a cop, and what you see is they had to do that to protect themselves. On the other hand, as one of the training instructors then emotionally pointed out to them, well, look, you could see, I'm not going to tell that, I'm not going to second guess that police officer, but you have to be able to understand that if you, if you kill somebody um, in the line of duty, let's say a 12-year-old kid with a toy gun 
you're going to have to live with that the rest of your life. So that's the kind of complex dynamics that's going on. Yeah, no, on it here. sounds like a fascinating uh, book to it's read. It's a really, yeah, and she's a good writer because she writes lots of stuff. And, and when, just when you, th- you reflect back on the last year and a half where we started out uh, January of the year before with the killing of those two uh, officers, uh, Pacific Islander officers sure. killed uh, by uh, a, man, a white man who was going to be convicted, and then, you know, we just had the recent thing with the South African being yeah. shot by the local police. So, yeah, it, it, the complexity is, yeah, it's fascinating. Well, and, and, and what I get out of this very quickly is this, that things like uh, Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, defund the police are kind of linguistic organizing devices. But as a conceptual way to think about the kind of work that police do and the kind of ways you want to change them, they're barely a starting point. Yeah, fascinating. But uh, I can't wait to pick up that book. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) All right. Thank you much. Sure. We have been chatting with uh, retired political science professor Neil Milner, a regular contributor here on The Conversation. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Patrick Hart of the University of Hawaii at Hilo brings us an update on the endangered alala and an opportunity for you to hear the song in person. Here's today's Manu Minute. As mentioned in a previous Manu Minute, Alala is a velvety black native Hawaiian crow that's actually more closely related to ravens. They were once common on Hawaii Island, but their numbers declined drastically in the 20th century due to habitat loss, hunting, and disease, to the point where none were left in the wild by the late 1990s. Today they're one of the world's rarest birds. A total of 132 alala remain at two breeding facilities in Hawaii managed by the San Diego Zoo. But today, there's exciting news that two alala now have a home at the Panaeva Zoo in Hilo. These two charismatic males are named Loliana and Panopau. The UH Hilo Lohe Bioacoustics Lab is also recording their vocalizations to see if and how their behaviors will change over time in this natural new environment. One amazing thing about corvids like our alala is that they're known to be among the most intelligent birds in the world. They're also what we call lifetime learners and that they can learn new behaviors or vocalizations throughout their life. Parrots are another bird that falls into this lifetime learner category. Most other bird species either have their vocalizations genetically hardwired in them, so that they usually sound similar to each other, or have only a small window of song learning in which they can learn their vocalizations from their parents and other birds around them. Since alala are in the lifetime learner group, this means that the new environment that the alala are in may have big impacts on their behaviors and vocalizations. Here are some of their vocalizations from their new home in Panaeva. We hope that you're someday able to see them at the Panaeva Zoo. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com show, we were rummaging around the toy box looking at yo-yos. Did you ever participate in recess tournaments to see if you were the best at walking the dog or making the best yo-yo elevator? 
Well, the first American yo-yo company was launched in 1928 by Filipino immigrant Pedro Flores, who began manufacturing the toys in Santa Barbara, California. A year later, entrepreneur Donald F. Duncan bought Flores' company. Do you remember the yo-yo craze here in the mid-90s? Well, Honolulu store owner uh, Alan Nagao sponsored a group of performers who wowed audiences with their two-handed tricks and fast action combinations at his shop, High Performance Kites. You may remember seeing them in their teal-colored polo shirts performing under the moniker Team High Performance. The answer to today's quiz. The team traveled internationally to promote the yo-yo, garnering audience praise in places like the United Kingdom, Singapore, and Japan. That was our quiz for today. If you have one you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Yo yo, it's my yo yo, so so you know now. Yo yo, it's my yo yo, throw high to low low. Let's zoom. Let's spin. And while the days are still long and the kids are still out of school, we are spotlighting citizen science. But what is that exactly? Well, the conversation Savannah Harriman Pope finds out. Citizen science is a term we're going to be throwing around a lot in the next couple of minutes, so let's start with the basics. What is citizen science? I spoke with Ellen McCauley, a program director at the National Science Foundation, to find out. The National Science Foundation is a federal agency supported by tax dollars, and our role is to fund some of the best research that's going on in the nation. So one of the things that we fund is citizen science. So citizen science is a term that doesn't have just one definition. Citizen science is a way that people, whether you're a trained scientist or not, can contribute to our understanding of the world. It's a way that you can volunteer your time, your energy, your expertise to provide insight to science. Sometimes it means collecting data. Sometimes it means using your expertise to find patterns in data. Sometimes it means going out in nature and looking for things or noting things that you think are unusual and bringing it to other people's attention. And it's that collective that really is the power of citizen science. Some people call it people-powered research or people-powered science or people-powered discovery. When we talk about citizen science in great places to find projects, uh, one is SciStarter.org and it is an online portal to all sorts of citizen science projects that are both local and global. So when people ask me how to get involved with citizen science, the first thing I would say is check out SciStarter. And that is just what Sarah Stein of the Kauai Community Science Center did. Welcome to the Wild Sourdough Project. This is audio from a YouTube video featuring Stein in May of last year. She's standing in a kitchen holding a jar of sourdough starter. But Stian isn't walking us through one of the many sourdough recipes that made the rounds early in the pandemic, my personal favorite being the New York Times sourdough pancake batter. No, Stian wants us to learn more about the microbes in our home. Microorganisms are microbes. They're around us, they're on us, they're in us, they're everywhere in our environment. This is part of a SciStarter project by researchers at North Carolina State University. And microorganisms that grow in wild sourdough starters primarily are yeast and bacteria that they're studying. So by having us, people from all around the world, participate in this experiment, they can learn about the microbes unique to where we live. This was Kauai Community Center's first virtual citizen science project during the pandemic. Now the Science Center holds science hotspots twice a month for the community. And they're just fun informal events. We have feature 3D printing, robotics, hands-on activities to make like a balloon launcher, a balloon rocket, sorry, or a rubber band launcher, all kinds of fun hands-on activities. But we also feature citizen science because it's another activity that people can do. So we have a project that was based here and started here in Hawaii for crown flower propagation. And the idea is to come up with the best method to consistently propagate crown flowers. And through this project, we collect cuttings for our events. So we bring the cuttings in, people make a, put soil in a, in a pot, they pot their cuttings and they take them home to see if they can get them to root. 
And this project had some unexpected and adorable results. Every time we collect cuttings, we also end up seeing caterpillars. So we grow the caterpillars and they turn into chrysalis and we have butterflies, which we also test through another project with the University of Georgia. It's called Project Monarch Health. That's where after your butterfly hatches, you take a small little sticker, you touch it to the butterfly's abdomen, and then that's enough of a sample. You put it on an index card and you can send that back to the University of Georgia. And the scientists there will analyze that to study a parasite that's very damaging for monarchs. Citizen Science has a role to play in other projects at the Science Center as well. For the next year, student interns at the Science Center are partnering with Kauai Island Utility Cooperative, the island's community-owned electricity company. They're working to create exhibits and events for the community about the West Kauai Energy Project, a new joint solar and hydropower initiative that could one day meet up to 25% of Kauai's energy needs. Another way these students have thought about using citizen science is on Kauai, we all have smart meters. Each household who is part of KIUC has data generated every second of every day about their power usage. That amount of data is just sitting there on a server and so we could create a citizen science project with an organization like SciStarter that engages the community in following their energy usage in any kind of way they might think of. Stian says one of the overall goals of the Kauai Community Science Center is to make science accessible and to help people see it as part of their everyday lives. And I do think that's an element of citizen science. It really makes it so anybody can be a scientist. And in reality, if you ever ask a question, you're a scientist. And that was the conversation Savannah Harriman Poe talking with Ellen McCauley of the National Science Foundation and Sarah Stein, head of the Kauai Community Science Center, about how to get involved in citizen science. We'll hear from more citizen science organizations in, across the islands tomorrow. And if you're in Kaloa on Saturday, you can attend the Kauai Science Center's Hotspot event. We'll have links on our website later today. We're out of time now, but up tomorrow, a survey of private schools and their COVID preparedness plans for the new school year. Mandatory masks and vaccines or not? We welcome your feedback. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.